Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm thankful that you're here. I appreciate all of you who are here worshiping with us in uh, person. Thanks so much. I appreciate all of, the, all of you who are joining us online. Thanks so much. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of John and the sixth chapter. As you just heard, we are beginning a new message series this weekend called I Am Jesus. And as we do, I want you to think about something with me. It's possible for someone to say, I know about Jesus. But knowing about Jesus is not what matters most in your life. What matters most is whether or not you genuinely know him. Don't miss that. The essential question of life isn't do you know about Jesus, it is do you know him in a personal way. Because when you take time to study your Bible, and in particular the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you discover this overwhelming truth about Jesus that can't be ignored, and here it is, Jesus is more than just a man. Somebody say amen to that. He's more than just a man. And when you discover that he's more than just a man, then you're faced with the need to decide how you're going to respond to him. Are you going to accept him or are you going to reject him? And you have to be thoughtful about that because accepting Jesus means more than just acknowledging the reality of his life. It means full and complete, unconditional surrender to him. That's what the Bible teaches us. And while I know most of you understand this, just in case there are some listening to me who do not, the choice of accepting or rejecting Jesus is the one thing, the one and only thing that will determine your eternal destiny. And this is so important that we're going to spend the next several weeks trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? But we're going to try to answer that question in his own words by looking at seven specific statements Jesus makes about himself in the gospel of John. And the interesting thing about all these statements is they all begin with the same words. They begin with Jesus saying, I am. And the significance of that is when Jesus says, I am, when he speaks about himself and he begins by saying, I am, he's really telling us his name, his name. I'm going to talk about that for just a minute because this weekend's message is going to focus on Jesus, the bread of life, but it's kind of an introduction to the series as well. I read a great article this last week from a man named J. Warner Wallace. I don't know if you recognize that name or not, but J. Warner Wallace is a man who became a Christian at the age of 35 after investigating the scriptures, in particular the gospels, as eyewitnesses account eyewitness accounts, rather, to the life of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about him is that professionally, he was a homicide detective for the Torrance Police Department's cold case unit in California. And so his entire professional life was all about looking at evidence, in particular, in his uh, context, looking at the evidence of a crime scene for the purpose of drawing a conclusion. And so that's the way he thought. That's the way his mind worked. And so that's what he did with the biblical evidence of Jesus. He looked at all the biblical evidence of Jesus for the purpose of drawing a conclusion about whether Jesus was the real thing or he was something else. And as a result, he became a Christian and uh, left his work in the police department and ultimately began to write and is one of the country's leading apologists. But as I was reading the article, this is what he said about himself. He said, as a skeptic, I was willing to accept a a nice guy version of Jesus, which is the way so many people view Jesus today. You know, the wise sage from the past who was misunderstood and mythicized into something divine by leaders of a movement who were either mistaken or deceptive. Jesus might have been a nice guy and a great teacher, but did he ever really claim to be God? 
I had atheist friends who knew more about the Gospels than I did, and they said that Jesus never claimed to be God in any of the New Testament accounts. But once I began to examine the Gospels for myself, I discovered my friends were wrong. Jesus did say specifically that he was God. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus didn't use those exact words, but his listeners understood what he meant. And then he went on to describe his investigation, which took him all the way back to the Old Testament book of Exodus in the third chapter. Now, I'm not familiar, I don't know if you're familiar with Exodus chapter three, but that's where God visits Moses in a burning bush and tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to be the great deliverer to lead my people, your people, out of Egyptian bondage. Well, when that happened, Moses was smart enough to ask God what his name was. Well, if I go to these people and they say, who sent you, what am I gonna tell them? And if you grew up in church, you probably know the answer. Because God gave Moses an interesting reply to the question. God said to Moses, I am, everyone say I am, I am who I am. And then he said, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God has sent me to you. I and his name is I am. And then Wallace writes, for generations following this interaction between God and Moses, the Israelites revered the name of God, that I am name, as a precious title that was not to be slandered or given to anyone or anything other than God himself, and then along came Jesus. And he talks about a story in John chapter eight, don't turn there, where Jesus is arguing, debating the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were questioning him, and they got so frustrated with Jesus that in the end, they accused him of being demon-possessed. I'm going to put Jesus' response up on the screen so we can see it together. And rather than put it up in the New International Version text that I normally use, I'm going to put it up in the Good News Translation. I have no demon, Jesus answered. I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. I am not seeking honor for myself, but there is one who is seeking it and who judges in my favor. I am telling you the truth. Whoever obeys my teaching will never die. Hang on to that because that really irritated the Pharisees. They said to him, now we know for sure you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets died, yet you say that whoever obeys your teaching will never die. Our father Abraham died. You do not claim to be greater than Abraham, do you? And the prophets died. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, if I were to honor myself, that honor would be worth nothing. The one who honors me is my father, the very one you say is your God. You have never known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see the time of my coming. He saw it and was glad. And they said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied. Before Abraham was born, say it with me. I am. I am. That's God's name. That's very specifically God's name, no one else. Jesus makes two remarkable statements in that passage. First of all, he claims to be eternal because he says, before Abraham existed, I am. Second, he calls himself God. That's what he does when he uses those words, I am. It's the same name God gave to Moses back in Exodus chapter three. And the Pharisees clearly understood that when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, that he was claiming to be God. And we know that from their reaction. John eight fifty nine says at this, at hearing him say, I am, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Listen, friends, when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am, he was saying, I am God. And this is something Jesus did multiple times throughout his earthly ministry. 
When we go back to that article I was telling you about, written by J. Warner Wallace, he goes on to write that when he discovered the different references in the gospel where Jesus declared himself to be God, he had to reconsider his simplistic view of Jesus as just a nice guy or a good teacher because what kind of teacher could Jesus have been if he was teaching a lie by saying that he was God? And he writes, Jesus' clear statements related to his deity forced me to reconsider Jesus and what he taught because he did specifically say that he was God. So let me go back to the question I asked in the beginning. When you, or not the question I asked, but rather what I said in the beginning, when you take the time to study the life of Jesus in the scriptures, specifically in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, you discover this overwhelming truth that can't be ignored. Jesus was more than just a man. And when you discover that he was more than just a man, you have to decide how you're gonna respond to him. Are you going to accept him or are you going to reject him? Now I hope and pray that, that, that all of you, or at least almost all of you who are listening to me have already made that decision. But if not, I wanna help you with the decision. Or if you're, if you're wavering on the decision, I wanna help you understand that uh, a little bit more by looking at s- some specific statements Jesus makes about himself, all in the Gospel of John, all that begin with the words, I am. The Gospel of John, I don't know if you know this or not, is different from the other three Gospels. You know, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they have a lot of similarities, and then the Gospel of John stands alone as being different. And the one thing that makes the Gospel of John different above everything else is that the Gospel of John presents Jesus, the reality of Jesus, as more than just a man. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as God in human flesh. That's the way it begins. It begins in John chapter 1 and verse 1 with Jesus with these words, John writing these words, in the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's the theme of the Gospel of John. And so it's not surprising to find these statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am the light of the world. And he says, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We're gonna look at all of those words and we're gonna begin today with Jesus' words, I am the bread of life. And that takes us to John 6. So if you got your Bible open and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the scripture. From time to time, people ask me, they come to me and say, Pastor, I'm being transferred or we're relocating to another country or we're moving because we can't stand the winter in Indiana, something like that. And they say, we need to find a new church home. Do you have any advice? And I always say the same thing. You find a church that reads from the Bible every single week every week. They don't just give lip service to it. They read from the Bible every single week. We're going to read John chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, down through verse 32. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me 
will never be thirsty. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I'm going to tell you right from the beginning, this is a difficult message. It was difficult to prepare. It'll be difficult to deliver because this reality of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life is something that pretty much unfolds over the course, the entire course of the sixth chapter of the gospel of John, which is a lot. And I don't have that much time. And so as I thought about how am I going to present this in a way that all makes sense, that a way that connects all the dots, that, that gives all the context and background, I thought, well, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about, number one, the miracle, then we're going to talk about, number two, the manna, and then we're going to finish, number three, by talking about the message. Let's start with the miracle. And what I mean by the miracle is when you look at the way the gospel of John begins, you see that in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, we read this familiar story, this familiar story of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, this is, a, this is a, a story from the Bible that most people are familiar with, even people who aren't believers. And one of the reasons why is because it's the only miracle that Jesus performed that's found in all four gospels, the only one. There are a little bit different nuances that, that give us different information about the background or context, but the story is all the same. Uh, Jesus uh, is in the uh, wilderness area, a remote place with his disciples, and the crowd follows him, and uh, you get to the end of the day, and Jesus and the crowd and the disciples say, Jesus, send these people away. It's getting late. They need to find something to eat and a place to stay, and Jesus said, well, you feed them. And they said, we don't have any food. We'll go find some food, and they found a little boy who had, remember, five loaves and two fish. Not five loaves like what we buy in the store, but five little brown barley loaves, probably about that size right there. And and uh, they said, this is all we have. And Jesus uh, took the bread and, and the fish and he blessed it. And then he gave it to the disciples and said, feed them. And you know the story. They fed the thousands upon thousands of people that were there. And there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Now, the Bible tells us that there were 5,000 men present. They didn't even count the women and children. So who knows how many thousands of people were there. This is the miracle. And it, it, really, it really sets the stage for what's coming because the miracle really focuses on the multiplication of that bread. That bread. Remember, we're talking about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. A couple of things before we move on from the miracle. Uh, when, you, when you look at the, this miracle, since it's found in all four gospels in kind of a harmony of the gospels, you learn a little bit about uh, what was going on in the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples. And I'm going to tell you something. What was going on was when this day began, they were worn out. They were worn out. Because the disciples had just returned from a time where Jesus sent them out to preach and to teach and to heal people and to cast out demons. And they had great success in doing that. And they'd just come back from doing that and they were celebrating and they were so excited. But how many of you know that, that uh, when you have a high like that, oftentimes it's followed by some kind of a post-adrenaline letdown, right? And so that's what they were feeling. We learn about that in Luke's account in Luke chapter 9. And then there was something going on with Jesus, too, on that day. Because Matthew 14, as it tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, begins by telling us that right before all this happened, Jesus just found out that John the Baptist had been executed. Do you remember that story? And listen, John the Baptist was not just nobody. He was, he was a relative of Jesus. Remember, his mother was Elizabeth. Mary went to visit Elizabeth, who was a, a relative of hers, when she found out she was pregnant. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. There was a connection there, and his heart had to have been broken, so much so that literally the Bible tells us in Matthew's gospel that Jesus was just looking for a solitary place so he could go and be alone with the disciples so he could rest. But here's the deal. The crowd followed them, and because Jesus was a man of the people, he couldn't say no to the crowd, at least not at this point in his ministry. There was going to come a time in Jesus' ministry where he's going to shift his focus from the crowd to his disciples because he got closer to his death and he needed to prepare them. But during this period of time, he was a man of the people. 
And so he taught them and he healed them and he cast demons out and he fed them with five loaves of bread and two little fish. And it was an incredible miracle. Some of you who have been with me to the Holy Land, we have literally stood on the site where that miracle happened. You go to the Holy Land and if you have an honest tour guide, they'll say, now this miracle happened somewhere in this area, somewhere around here. But you go there and you go to the place where Jesus fed the 5,000, they say, this is where it happened. We've stood there. That's the miracle. Then you move on to the text, and the second thing you talk about is the manna. That's number two. That stands out next. John chapter 6 and verse 16, as it tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, says, after that was over, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But what's interesting here is that it's just the disciples who get in the boat. Jesus doesn't get in the boat. So the question is, where is Jesus? John 6, 17 answers the question simply by saying Jesus had not yet joined them. We get a better understanding of where Jesus was in Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 23 literally says about Jesus, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Remember, Jesus' heart was heavy at learning the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded cruelly executed by a sinful, evil man with a dark, dark heart. And Jesus, having carried that news with him all day long and having given himself to the people all day long, needed some time alone, so he went up on the mountainside to pray. And what happens next is the story of Jesus going to the disciples by walking on the water. Incredible story. I wish we had time to talk about it, but we don't. So just put that out of your mind for a moment. So... As incredible as that story is, what happens next is what we want to focus on because uh, the next day, the crowd, uh, at least a portion of the crowd that Jesus fed wakes up and they realize that Jesus is gone. Now, they knew the disciples were gone because they'd seen Jesus put the disciples in a boat, but they also knew that Jesus didn't get in the boat with them. So they look around and they notice, and we see this in John chapter 6 and verse 22, that only one boat was missing. So where's Jesus? Well, they, they can't answer that question, so they all get in the boats and they go to Capernaum to find him. And when they get there, they find Jesus. Jesus, because he's there, because he, walk, he joined the, the disciples later in the evening by walking on the water and getting in the boat with them. And so the first thing they say to him is John 6, 25. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you get here? But here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even acknowledge the question. And immediately, this is what Jesus says to them. This is John 6, verses 26 and 27. I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, that took the crowd by surprise, and they didn't really know what to say, and so they just said, well, what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus says in verse 29, the work of God is to believe, believe in the one he has sent. In other words, he said, the work of God is for you to believe in me. Now, let's pause here for a minute and make sure we're on the same page. Here's what Jesus is doing, just in case you haven't noticed it. He's trying to take advantage of this moment to have a spiritual moment with these people. He's trying to make a spiritual point with these people. But what's happening is that they're not discerning enough to see that. They're not discerning enough to understand that Jesus is not interested in talking about physical food. He's He's not interested in talking about physical nourishment or physical fullness. He wants to talk about spiritual food, spiritual nourishment, spiritual fullness. But they are too... uh, 
dense or whatever to understand that that's what he's doing because all they're focused on is Jesus continuing to meet their physical needs. They're focused on their stomachs and not their hearts. Jesus was focused on their hearts in this moment, not their stomachs. And so because they didn't understand what he was talking about, this is what they said next in John 6, 30 and 31. What miraculous, this is crazy to me. What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And then they go back to Sunday school and they go back to the Old Testament, an Old Testament story. And they said, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so this theme of bread continues through John chapter six. And that's why this point number two is called the manna. Now, first of all, can we just all agree that this is a pretty ridiculous conversation at this point? Because Jesus says in, in verse 29 of John 6, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. And they say, what miraculous sign then will you give them that we may see it and believe you? These are the same people, everyone say same people, same people that just the day before had witnessed Jesus take five small barley loaves and two fish and multiply them to feed perhaps as many as 10 to 15,000 people with 12 basketfuls left over. And if that weren't enough, Jesus could say, by the way, you remember the question you asked me when I, you first got here? When did you get here? And you remember how you saw the disciples get in the boat, but you didn't see me get in the boat? And you remember how this morning you woke up and you saw that there was only one boat gone? How do you think I got here? But they're asking for another sign. Now, we, we shake our heads and say, what a bunch of idiots. What a bunch of morons. But how many times do we do the same thing? How many times does God show up in your life over and over and over again in very specific, very different, very important ways, and yet we're wondering, well, when's God going to really seal the deal with me? When are you going to do something that really, really makes me believe? We're not that different at the end of the day. And so they go back to the Old Testament story and they say, well, what are you going to do to give us a sign? This is what Moses did when our ancestors were wandering in the wilderness. Remember the story? Moses led the Egyptians out of, uh, or excuse me, the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage and they wandered in the wilderness and they came to a place called the Desert of Sin. Doesn't that just sound awful? The Desert of Sin. And they were grumbling and complaining because they didn't have anything to eat. And so in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 4, God uh, said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And that's what the manna was. Uh, and they woke up one morning, they went out of their tents, and there was manna on the ground. And by the way, the word manna literally in the Hebrew language means what, what is it? And so they got up one morning, they walked out of their tents, and they looked, what is it? It was bread from heaven that was covering the ground. And Moses gave them instructions from God. Said five days a week, they were to gather enough manna just for the day, just for the day. If you got greedy and you didn't trust that there was gonna be bread the next day and you gathered more than you needed, then it was gonna turn into a maggot and crawl off in the middle of the night. That's a good sign or a good picture to have in your mind right there. But then there was gonna be one day where they gathered enough bread for two days. Why? Because they didn't work on the Sabbath. And they needed to, and God sustained that. And that manna didn't spoil it, it was there. And it was, it was not just nourishment, but it was God proving to them the reality of his provision and his care and challenging them to be people who live by faith. And so they said, well, well this, is what, this, is, 
This is what happened in the wilderness. This is what Moses did. This is how people knew for sure that God was the real deal. Even though they'd seen him part the Red Sea, even though they'd seen all the, the, the things that Moses had done uh, in Egypt to get Pharaoh to ultimately let them go. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were people of the moment, which is just the same way some, many of us are. We're people of the moment. What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately, God, is what we think about. And Jesus shows remarkable restraint. I mean, remarkable restraint. Because most of us, at least I, would have just lit right into those people in no uncertain terms. But he says to them in verses 32 uh, through 36, this is his words and, and then a response from them. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. But here's the deal. They were still thinking it was physical bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. So we talk about the miracle. We talk about the manna. And now we'll talk about the message. What, what do we really learn from this? What's the message that Jesus wants to convey? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm so sorry that I don't have more time because really uh, the, the, the story goes on. There's so much that happens. It goes all the way down into the, into, uh, well into the, toward the end of the, of the chapter. But let me just try to summarize the message with three observations. And if you don't normally take notes or don't normally write things down, these might be good things to try to find a way to remember. And because I, I just, I, I'm just so familiar with this story and so familiar with this text. I just, I just kind of pushed my chair back from my desk and I thought, what really, what, in the simplest terms, in the simplest terms, what really stands out to me as I study this passage? And here's the first thing I wrote down. Jesus is the master of the teachable moment. And if you read the gospels and you study his life, you know that's true. Jesus is the master of the teachable moment. And I don't even think that requires a whole lot of explanation. Jesus took what had happened throughout the course of the last couple of days. He took this event that featured the supernatural multiplication of five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a crowd of thousands. And he took this conversation about how there was a time in the past when God provided the Israelites with bread from heaven, manna in the wilderness, and he used it as this springboard to teach this powerful truth about himself, this powerful truth about what they needed to understand about him by saying, I am the bread of life. It's basically... It's basically like this. Jesus kind of thought about all the things that had transpired between him and this group of people for the last 48 hours or so. And he said, you want to talk about bread? Let's talk about bread. I am the bread of life. There's an application, I think, for this in all of our lives and in all of our relationships. Can I tell you that some of the most powerful spiritual conversations I have ever had with people. And this ranges from people in my family to people that I have met and I am talking to for the very first time in my life. Some of the most powerful conversations, spiritual conversations I've ever been involved with or in have just been the result of recognizing a teachable moment. 
And let me, let me apply this to our lives in a very specific way, and I'll try to do this quickly. When we think about evangelism, reaching out and, and winning people to Christ, leading people who are not in a relationship uh, with God, who are not living in fellowship with God, to, a, uh, to fellowship with him through a personal faith in Christ, we call that spiritual influence here at the church. One of our, four, our core four values, compelling worship, relational discipleship, serving others across the street and around the world, and spiritual influence. And so we challenge everyone in our church to be willing to do this one thing, to develop a friendship with someone who is not a Christian. Develop a friendship uh, with somebody who is a long way from God. We just say develop a friendship and then discover their story and then discern next steps about how you might uh, influence them for Christ. But I'm just going to tell I'm going to really simplify this for everybody this, this morning. Everybody here, everybody listen online. I want you to pay close attention. I, I got a challenge for you today in this new year. I don't know if you think about New Year's resolutions or you think that's just a bunch of bull or whatever, but I got a challenge for you. Make it your goal in 2023 to just simply develop a friendship with someone who is not a believer. Just do that. Just do that. Don't worry about the other two things. You didn't hear me say that, but don't worry about the other two things. Just develop a friendship with somebody who's not a believer because you know what happened? You develop a friendship with somebody who's not a believer. It's just a matter of time before you discover their story because that's what happens. How many of you, I've discovered somebody's story in three minutes standing in a line behind them in a grocery store because people are willing to tell you their story if, you're just, if they just think you're willing to listen. It's not work. It's not even hard work. Just develop a friendship with someone. I guarantee you, you'll discover their story. And after you discover their story, if you develop a genuine friendship with them, not an acquaintance, I'm talking about pursue a relationship, a personal relationship, then you will have opportunities for spiritual influence in their life. It'll happen. I guarantee you. Listen to me. I've been doing this for a long time. It will happen. Because along the way, you know what you'll discover? You'll discover teachable moments. You'll, you'll discover spiritual moments conversational moments where you can talk about spiritual things. Jesus was the master of this. He sits down by a well while his disciples go into town to get something to eat because he's tired. There's a woman there. What does he say to her? What's he do in John chapter four? He says, hey, would you mind giving me a drink of water? What happened next? She became a Christ follower and not only her, but her entire village, almost her entire village learned the truth about Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus was the master of teachable moments and we can apply that in our lives. Here's the second thing that stood out to me and this is just so basic and so undramatic, but it has to be said, Jesus is all you need. It's all any of us need in this world Clearly, this is the central message of the text. One of the fundamental truths of the scriptures is that every one of us on our own are in a bad way because we were created to live in fellowship with God. But we don't live in fellowship with God today because all of us are sinners. You go back to the creation story and you see that, that when God created Adam and Eve, you can, you can see that they were created to live in fellowship with God. You can see the evidences of that in portions of Genesis chapter two and portions of Genesis chapter three. But, but when they disobeyed God and sin entered the world, their fellowship with God was replaced by separation from God because that's what sin does, it separates. And so the only way anyone can live in fellowship with God today is for their sin to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus came to the world. He came 
came in the world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He came in the world to give his life on the cross to satisfy God's need for justice with regard to sin. God is too holy and pure to just wink at sin and act like it never happened. There had to be a punishment. There had to be a penalty that was paid, and Jesus paid that penalty. Look at these words on the screen from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Read them with me. Let me hear your voices. For God made Christ to never sin, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the gospel right there. When you're not living in a right relationship with God, and that's the case for anybody who's not surrendered their heart in complete faith and trust to Christ, when you're not living in a right relationship with God, like you were created to live, you're living in separation from God because of your sin. And because of that, the bottom line is you're not in the right place in your life. You're not. God's place for you is in fellowship with him. If you're not living in fellowship with him, you're not living in the right place with God. And because you're not living in the right place, then you've got all kinds of issues and and problems and struggles and needs and challenges in your life that you'll never be able to overcome on your own. My experience as a pastor has taught me a lot about people. And most people are aware, most people that I've talked to who are not believers are aware that there's something wrong with their life, there's something missing in their life, that they're not living in the right place in their life. What they don't understand, or what they have difficulty comprehending at times, is that Jesus is the answer to that need in their life. Because Jesus is the bread of life who can completely satisfy and fill your life, your heart, your mind, your soul. I love these words from Max Lucado. He said, what bread is to hunger, Jesus is to the soul. What bread is to hunger, and bread is the theme of John chapter six. What bread is to hunger, Jesus is to the soul. Let me share a story, it's not very long, that I came across when I was putting this message together. During World War II, the Germans forced many 12 and 13-year-old boys into what they called the Junior Gestapo. They were treated very harshly and given inhumane jobs to perform, it was awful. And when the war ended, most had lost track of their families and wandered without any food and without any shelter. But as a part of an aid program to post-war Germany, many of these boys were placed in what was called at the time tent cities, where doctors and psychologists work with them in an attempt to try to restore their mental and physical health. And they found that many of the boys, this was an interesting thing, many of those boys, when this first began, would awaken in the middle of the night screaming in terror. 12 and 13 year old boys. But one doctor had an idea for handling that. He had a suggestion, he said, let's try this. After feeding the boys a large meal at night, Let's put them to bed with a piece of bread in their hands. And let's tell them that they are to hold onto that bread and save it until the morning. And what they discovered is that the boy slept soundly after that because after so many years of hunger and want and questions, they finally had the assurance that they were gonna have food the next day. Having the bread of life gives us the same security. And I want you to listen to me really close. It doesn't matter what 
circumstances surround you in your life today. It doesn't matter what failure or regret continues to overwhelm your heart day after day after day. It doesn't matter how deep the fear or the anxiety or the depression is that continually comes back to you. The pain, any other thing that haunts you. Jesus is the bread of life and he can give you peace. He can change your life. Now, I would never want to mislead anybody to say that if you're struggling with something like anxiety or fear or depression and you gave your heart to Jesus today that immediately that's all going to be gone. But he has the ability to help you come to the place where that's gone as you grow in him, as you grow in your new identity in him and as you grow to understand how he views you and how his view of you is the only thing that matters in this world, that we're not created to, 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 to fit ourselves uh, accordingly to the standards of the world, but we're to, we're to look at ourselves in light of who he is and his love for us and what he has done for us and on and on and on. The bottom line is this, whatever it is you're struggling with in your life, Jesus as the bread of life is the one thing that can meet your need and satisfy the deepest part of your soul. Here's the third thing, and I'm sorry, I'm in the red. I'm gonna be going a little bit long. At some point, here's the third thing that came to my mind. At some point, we need to move from an emphasis in our lives on the physical to an emphasis on the spiritual. And again, I don't think that requires a lot of explanation. The day after Jesus fed the crowd, they came to him and Jesus said again, John 6, 26 through 27, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And they didn't understand that. But as I said earlier, let's not be too quick to stand in judgment because we do the same thing. We come to Jesus sometimes because we want him to make us happy. We come to Jesus sometimes because we want him to solve our problems. We come to Jesus sometimes because we want him to heal our sickness. We come to Jesus sometimes because we want him to fulfill our dreams and guarantee us a happy life, guarantee us a happily ever after life. But Jesus has a greater perspective for your life and for mine than just the physical day in and day out things that we experience because he doesn't look at us in this temporary realm of the world. He looks at us through the lens of eternity. And so that means we need to move from this obsession with the physical to an understanding of the spiritual in our lives. When I was sick and going through weekly chemotherapy and radiation treatments back in the early months of 2012, I used to read these words from the Apostle Paul every day over and over again. And then I would just have them in my mind and I would say them in my mind over and over again. Paul wrote, Philippians chapter one and verse 21, these words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. If probably know Paul wrote those words when he was writing a letter to the Philippians from prison. He was in jail and literally Paul did not know what tomorrow held. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. And those words meant so much to me at the time because I had the same kind of feeling. I didn't know what the next day was going to hold and I didn't know if I was going to live or die. When you study those words in the original language of the New Testament, 
that phrase, that statement specifically, to live as Christ and to die as gain, you find that in the original language, that phrase contains no verbs. And what that means is this. It literally reads like this. To live, Christ. To die, gain. How would you summarize that? How about like this? Win, win. To live, Christ. To die, gain. Win, win. But if you're obsessed with the physical and you don't have the the, the ability to understand the spiritual reality of life, then you're never going to understand that. Honoring Christ, serving Christ, living for Christ, that brings purpose to our lives because everything the world has to offer, whether it be money or power or possessions or success or even physical health, the guarantee of a long life, are all just transitory things. But when we're connected to Jesus, who is the bread of life, when we're filled with Jesus, who is the bread of life, when our soul is satisfied by Jesus, who is the bread of life, then our focus is on the eternal. <laughs> 